Chapter Seven, Part One of the Autobiography of Moncure D. Conway, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. College Life, President Peck, A Practical Joke, Reading, A Winter Adventure, Editing the Collegian, First Love, Orations at Graduation, My Secretaryship of a Southern Rights Society, My Public Lecture in Fredericksburg, law student and deputy clerk in Fauquier, writing for the press, crisis wrought by Emerson, visiting Washington, listening to the great senators, my first pamphlet, Free Schools in Virginia, a camp meeting in Loudoun, a banquet at Warrenton to our senators. In September 1848 I returned to Carlisle alone, my brother's health having failed. I was the youngest of the seniors. Our speeches at Saturday Declamation were original compositions. I straightway made a partisan speech in the humorous vein, which was answered by Whig students. There was no ill-temper among us, but to politics were due many recitation-room failures. We were a miniature of the whole country. Culture and presidential elections are not so harmonious. For myself I had returned to college somewhat demoralized by the political campaign, and especially by an engendered anti-Northern feeling. John Daniel had asked me to write for the Richmond Examiner, and I went about Carlisle searching out something to ridicule or assail. The low condition of the free Negroes made one letter, and tipsiness of students at Christmas another. I wrote only two of these crudities, I am glad to say, and there was truth in both, albeit exaggerated by my inflated southernism. Unfortunately, the college was also demoralized that autumn. The institution, bereaved of President Emory, had gone on smoothly enough while the presidential functions were entrusted to our beloved McClintock, but on an evil day Reverend Dr. Jesse T. Peck was elected. Our immature minds could not appreciate his good qualities, while his large paunch, fat face, baby-like baldness, and pompous air impressed the college as a caricature. He had been a school-teacher and called us boys, and we thought him inclined to discipline us like boys. Several incidents occurred, one involving my chum, Henry Smith, another myself, which stirred my dislike of Peck into wrath. I tried a practical joke on him, which brought me remorse, and is mentioned here only because it has become a college tradition. Several erroneous versions of this incident have appeared, and others besides myself have been connected with it. I am, however, the only culprit. A Methodist conference was to gather at Staunton, Virginia, and President Peck was to read there a report on the college. Staunton was famous for its lunatic asylum, whose physician was Dr. Stribling. Under an assumed name, I wrote to Dr. Stribling that a harmless lunatic had gone off to Staunton, who imagined himself president of Dickinson College, and fancied he had a report to make to the conference. Dr. Peck's appearance was described minutely, and Dr. Stribling was requested to detain him in comfort until his friends could attend. As Dr. Peck was travelling with other Methodist ministers, I could not suppose that the missive would have any result beyond raising a laugh on him, 
but Dr. Peck was met by Dr. Stribling in his carriage, and supposed that such was the arrangement of the conference for his entertainment. Of course the deception was soon discovered at the asylum. I perceived that Dr. Peck was convinced that I was the guilty one, and it must have been through him that my name became connected with the affair. This was my first and last attempt at a practical joke. More than forty years later, when honored at Dickinson College with a literary degree, I entered our venerable Union Philosophical Society, and the proceedings were suspended in order that I might be asked to give an exact account of the Staunton Peck story. It was to me like being called up at Judgment Day, and after telling the story, I remarked that, though my eschatology might be unorthodox with regard to eternal punishment, the perpetuity of that affair was enough to show that in the world there is a sort of endless punishment. I found out, somewhat to my dismay, that the legend was the thing by which I stood best in college traditions. For Dr. Peck appears to have gone on accumulating the student's ill-will until at length he was removed, and later made a bishop. After the November election, 1848, I returned to literary studies, reading especially the old English novelists. The new school of writers, Goethe, Emerson, Channing, George Sand, Hawthorne, were not in our libraries. At Dickinson College, American literature consisted of Poe, Longfellow, Bryant, Irving, Paulding, Cooper, Prescott, R. H. Dana, Bancroft, Sparks, N. P. Willis, Mrs. Sigourney, Carolyn Lee Hentz, and a few others, chiefly women, whose verses were widely read. Byron had been forbidden me in my boyhood, for I was a precocious reader, and the phase of life when I might have enjoyed him passed. In later life my mother was distressed to find that I felt no interest in Byron. I was not much attracted by Walter Scott's novels or poetry, though I eagerly read his criticisms on other writers. John Daniel was an enthusiast about Shakespeare, but by the slowness of my appreciation of him I can recognize how much of the child was in me along with precocity in one or two directions. I cannot remember that my religion had much to do with either theology or the Bible. Within four months after my conversion, I wrote a piece for the Fredericksburg paper entitled Curiosity, and find in it such levity as this. You may talk about Eve's curiosity entailing death and misery on the human race, and such like, but don't tell me. Is not desire for knowledge praiseworthy? Was not Eve assured, on the authority of Monsieur le Devil, that if she would eat the apple she would be a more sensible woman than she was then? What else? This was written when I was about sixteen, and I cannot discover in my notes anything leading to such a tone. I had never seen an unorthodox book. In childhood we were forbidden to go barefoot after September for fear of catching cold, but one year I went off to a lonely place and disported my bare feet in the snow. No ill effects resulted, and I had taken a step toward independence. But at college I had a serious encounter with nature. A classmate of ability, John Henry Waters, afterwards scientific professor in Missouri, invited me to go home with him, Hartford County, Maryland, for the Christmas holidays, 1848. We had to make the two days' journey in a half-covered buggy. 
Numb with cold, we stopped for the night at a country inn and were warmed by whiskey punch. This was my first taste of anything alcoholic, and after that I took my first cigar, without a qualm, moral or physical. I once published my belief that a true history of tobacco would be a history of constitutional freedom, and perhaps I might have added that in each American's first cigar there is a personal declaration of independence. By the blessing of tobacco we defied zero and passed a happy week in Maryland. But in returning we were overtaken by a fearful blizzard. The snow piled itself in great drifts, our wheels became clogged, and our horse began to give out. Half frozen as we were, it is probable that we were saved serious results by the necessity of pushing the buggy. At length the traces broke, we both mounted the one horse, and, leaving the buggy, struggled on about two miles before we saw a house. There we found shelter and help in afterwards recovering our buggy. We had an extremely hard time of it, says my diary, but I know it has done me good, made me more self-reliant. Early in 1849 I persuaded the students to start a monthly periodical. The collegian lasted until vacation. I do not know whether there exists any file of the five numbers except that in my possession. I was the editor, but had a good staff. Several of the assistant professors contributed to it, and Professor Allen gave me a metrical translation of Cleanthes' Hymn to Jupiter. I have a personal reason to congratulate myself that the articles were anonymous, mine being mostly trash for the task of critical selection from the contributions of others allowed little time for taking pains with my own. Also, I fell in love. I was just seventeen, and this love was the second of my births. Catherine, sister of President Emery, though born on the same day as myself, was more mature in mind. She consented to an occasional correspondence after my departure, but not to a betrothal. At the anniversary of our Union Philosophical Society, I was appointed to deliver the comic speech. My piece, the philosophy of language, was a tissue of bad puns, the puerility of which was perhaps less than the solemnity of my oration at the college commencement. This subject was old age, and the Carlyle Herald said it was a badly chosen subject, as the orator is a very young man. All his theory is so, and no more. He has not an atom of experience of the pleasures and pains of old age. Had I been old enough to take that criticism to heart, I should not now have to look back upon so many early years in which I impressed congregations with error, and was praised for eloquence, the eloquence of inexperience. My graduating oration was suggested by an anecdote told me by my friend Charles C. Tiffany, that Channing, when sixty, was asked what he had found the happiest period of his life, and replied, sixty. Tiffany, now an eminent clergyman in New York, was a junior when I was a senior, but to him I looked up, for in general literary culture he was the most accomplished student in college. Besides work on the Collegian, I wrote in the spring of 1849 five articles for the Fredericksburg paper on old writers of fiction, those selected being Fielding, Smollett, Stern, Anne Radcliffe, Horace Walpole.
there is nothing original in these articles. I refer and defer a good deal to Scott, Ferrier, and Hazlitt. I do not know how I realized what I said incidentally in the last article, 1849, of Maria Edgeworth. She has done more in inculcating principles of morality, humanity, I, of religion, though no direct mention of this latter is made in any of her works, than any authoress in the nineteenth century. The breaking up of college life was sorrowful. On my last night there I did not go to bed at all, but hovered around the home of my beloved. Living so long in London, I have been unable to follow the careers of most of my fellow students. An exciting competition for honors in the class of 1848 occurred between J. J. Cresswell of Maryland and J. W. Marshall of Virginia, by whom in the end the honors were shared. Marshall became a professor of Latin in the college, and later was consul at Sheffield, England. Cresswell filled several important positions, and was postmaster-general under President Grant. George de Bonneville Keem, with whom my intimacy continued until his death, was an eminent railroad president in Pennsylvania. E. Barrett Prettyman, for a time my chum, used to be called a lazy genius at college. He became an eminent educator in Baltimore. Henry Bascom Ridgway became a distinguished pulpit orator, and was afterward president of the Methodist College at Evanston. He wrote an interesting life of Rev. Alfred Cookman, the famous revivalist, who perished at sea. Daniel Bonbright succeeded Ridgway in the Evanston presidency. John Jeremiah Jacob was a governor of West Virginia, Harmon a professor at Carlisle, and John Wilson a college president at Staunton, Virginia. Nathaniel Lupton gained distinction as a professor in Vanderbilt University. But there were a good many brilliant youths at college of whom I expected to hear more in after life. Some rest in Confederate or Union graves. Others, I trust, enjoy the happiness of having no history. My selection of old age as the theme of my graduating oration strikes me now as pathetic. I graduated when about three months past my seventeenth birthday, or just at the time when I should have entered the college. I felt the burden of my youth. My only enthusiasm was for literature, but what channel was there in Virginia for that? None. Although my father was in good pecuniary circumstances, he had a right to expect that I would select some profession, and I troubled him by continuing to write small pieces for the Fredericksburg paper and the Richmond Examiner, and one or two tales published in the Southern Literary Messenger. John Daniel paid for what I wrote in the Examiner, more than the articles were worth, but there was no prospect of finding in the South any support from unpolitical and untheological literature. It was a time when a young Virginia was rising up to promulgate the philosophical, sociological, and ethnical excellence of slavery. In this direction, able pamphlets were written by Beverly Welford of Fredericksburg, now an eminent judge in Richmond, and George Fitzhugh of Port Royal, while a religious propaganda was carried on by the Rev. Mr. Stringfellow of the Episcopal Church and the Rev. Dr. William Smith, President of Randolph-Macon College, Methodist. My father's moderation and his theoretically anti-slavery principles were rapidly becoming old-fashioned. 
he was troubled by the efforts of the younger generation to capture me, as I had by this time acquired some local reputation as a writer. My uncle Judge Eustace Conway was the personal friend of the South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun, then the high priest of Southern rights, a statesman whose intellectual face, which I remember, and whose character comported little with the belligerent secessionism for which his constitutional principles were unconsciously preparing the way. John Daniel, extreme as he was, opposed Calhoun's demand for a constitutional amendment guaranteeing to the slave states an equilibrium with the free states, a demand which, he said, gives color to the charge of desiring disunion. Nine years later, this kind of radicalism receded into reactionism under the rage excited by John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry. My father and his younger brother Eustace had taken up opposite positions in the Methodist dispute about slavery, and a Southern Methodist church was built in Fredericksburg, Uncle Eustace supplying the means. It stood on ground now occupied by the residence of my brother Peter. Personally, the brothers were never estranged, and if they could have agreed on church politics, the history of Methodism in Virginia might have been different, for Fredericksburg was the chief battlefield of the wings, and my father and his brother were the lay leaders. Uncle Eustace was a favorite speaker in the presidential campaign of 1848. I remember some politician saying to him, I never carry my pew into politics, nor politics into the pew. I carry both into both, replied my uncle. But I was not yet up to that. I stood by my father in pew politics, with my uncle in party politics. A few months after my graduation, I was invited to attend a meeting in the law office of Thomas B. Barton, whose son William, afterwards judge, was the chief mover in the matter. The object of the gathering was the formation of a Southern Rights Association. Only about a dozen were present, but they were persons of large influence. Some asserted the right of secession, though no immediate action of the kind was advocated. I was flattered by being appointed secretary of the meeting, but cannot find my notes of the proceedings. Extreme pro-Southern resolutions were passed. My father heard of this meeting, and a few days later, when we were riding together to Stafford Courthouse, asked me about it. I told him all that had occurred. He went on in silence for some moments, then said quietly, Don't be the fool of those people. Slavery is a doomed institution. How often have I remembered those words? Yet at the time they only mystified me. Slavery seemed to be a permanent effect as the Rappahannock River. Neither my father nor any of the Methodists were proposing to abolish slavery, and I was inclining to the view that the opposition to it was merely traditional. In the September following I visited Carlisle again, and on my way called on Professor Baird at the Smithsonian Institution at Washington. He gave me a cordial welcome, and when I said I was about to revisit my alma mater, added, And your alma somebody else. He showed me the plates and sheets of the German iconographic encyclopedia, a translation of which he was editing. I took careful notes, and wrote for the Fredericksburg paper an article about the work, 
which received acknowledgment from the professor. My pen assumed a new dignity. I had written something that Professor Baird regarded as serviceable to an important work. In the following year, 1850, Fredericksburg Society began to take notice of me. Certain writings were recognized as mine and were discussed. Meanwhile I was beginning to feel restless and eager to enter upon some kind of occupation. My parents did not understand this, and one day I disappeared from home much to their consternation. I went to Richmond in order to see John Daniel and find whether he could employ me on the examiner. When I entered the office, Edgar A. Poe was just leaving it. John Daniel said that if I had finally broken away from home and made up my mind to devote myself to journalism, he would give me work, but he would not seek to influence me in the matter. He would continue to pay me for what I might write. My uncle Eustace Conway was in the legislature. He and his family made my brief sojourn pleasant, but he persuaded me to return home. An incident in Richmond made a deep impression on me. On Sunday morning I accompanied Uncle Eustace's wife and her sister Fanny Tomlin to the old Episcopal church on Shockhoe Hill, and after the benediction my aunt stopped to speak to the clergyman and his family, with whom she was acquainted. We were in the vestry, and there the clergyman invited us to enjoy the remainder of the bread and wine he had just been using in the communion service. I was shocked by the swiftness with which the bread and wine had lost their sacredness. Immediately after leaving home I had sent a note to my father saying where I had gone, and that I did not mention it to him beforehand because I was afraid he would prevent my going. I stayed away only a few days, and on my return found him angry. Nevertheless, he recognized that a crisis was reached. He had really been hoping that I would adopt the ministerial profession, but now suggested studying law. I agreed to that, and soon afterwards he heard that Colonel William Falk Phillips, clerk of the Fauquier County and a learned lawyer, was in want of a deputy clerk. For my services Colonel Phillips offered me residence in his home and supervision of my law studies. While these arrangements were going on privately, I was honored by a number of gentlemen in Fredericksburg with a request to deliver a lecture in the town hall. This lecture was given in the evening of March 1st, 1850. Alas, still under the burden of youth, I selected for my theme pantheism. The large hall was crowded with the finest people of our region, among whom, however, only the clergymen know the meaning of pantheism. Not even they saw danger in my respectful sentiments towards pantheism, and Pope gained applause for his couplet, all are but parts of one stupendous whole, whose body nature is, and God the soul. Orthodoxy was delighted with my illustration of the Trinity by the three primary colors blended in light. On the whole I appeared to get through fairly well, and received congratulations, but two days later W. H. Fitzhugh, a sagacious lawyer, said, you will make yourself unpopular by speaking above the vulgar comprehension. Unpopular? I had no desire for popularity, no dreams of anything beyond writing what would please certain intellectual people in Virginia and Carlisle. On March 3rd I received from our Fredericksburg preacher, Norval Wilson, a certificate of church membership. In giving it to me, he said, 
St. Paul, before he preached, tarried three years in Arabia. Now Warrenton may be your Arabia. The next day I went to Alexandria, and from there travelled to Warrenton on a stagecoach. I find in my journal this entry, read in the coach, from the Richmond Examiner, the great stone face. The writer of it, Nathaniel Hawthorne, is a striking writer, man of great reflection. I had previously read The Celestial Railroad, and supposed Nathaniel a nom de plume. On March ninth, James Duncan, a handsome young Methodist preacher, staying at the house of Colonel Phillips, read to us Daniel Webster's famous 7th of March speech. The reader's voice was musical, and the impression made upon me by the speech is thus recorded. Heavens, what a titan is Webster! I should like to see his dust subjected to chemical analysis after he's dead. While I was writing this, the best northern men were mourning for that same speech. Emerson was saying of his former idol, Every drop of his blood has eyes that look downward. John Daniel printed in the Examiner Theodore Parker's scathing discourse upon Webster's speech, and pronounced Webster an elephantine coward. The home of Colonel Phillips was a pleasant, old-fashioned house in a pretty garden. The family consisted of his two daughters and widowed sister. The ladies were Methodists, but Colonel Phillips ignored all churches. No efforts were spared by these ladies to make my new home happy. The colonel was a superb old gentleman in appearance, and a radical Democrat. He was exact in his office, and my work there was an instruction in precision. The change of a word might involve much. I studied law with much interest, and closely followed the pleadings and trials in the courthouse. The lawyers were able, Robert Eden Scott, James Marshall, kinsman of the famous Chief Justice, Inman Horner, Samuel Chilton, William Payne, kept up the high traditions of the Virginia Bar. The Honorable Robert E. Scott charmed me by his fine personality and manners, but he was the leading Whig, and, young Virginia being politically infallible, I listened to his public speeches mainly to describe their fallacies in the examiner. Alas, what a poison is partisanship! My uncle Eustace, who was a lawyer first and a politician after, and my father, who was above all a magistrate, were able to honor such jurists as Judge Scott and his son Robert, but in my new zeal I resented the course of the latter in the Virginia legislature, 1848, on the slavery question. My uncle Eustace had introduced into the legislature resolutions hostile to the Wilmot Proviso, then before Congress. These resolutions affirmed that any such restriction on the equality of Southern institutions would justify secession of the slave states from the Union. Robert Eden Scott led the opposition to these Conway resolutions, as they were called, but the gallant statesman was defeated. Though he and Uncle Eustace remained good friends, Scott was vehemently attacked by the Southern fire-eaters, and defeated at the election that followed. In 1850 he was again a candidate, and on March 25th addressed the people in the courthouse at Warrenton. I have in my scrapbook of crudities my report of this address in the Richmond Examiner, interlarded with flings at the speaker, 
to whose great and brave thought I was blind. He began by a noble depreciation of party spirit, which he declared a more potent influence than that of religion or morality, and warned the people that any attempt to erect a southern confederacy would end in their ruin. Here, then, in Robert E. Scott was a real nobleman, representative of the best traditions of Virginia, and I knew it not. His tall, dignified figure, his fine, blond head and face, his charming candor and simplicity are visible to me across the more than half-century elapsed since I last saw him. This admirable man went on suffering political defeat and humiliation for his independence and fidelity to his principles, and was one of the many honorable Virginians who carried their state against secession after the election of Lincoln, but were forced to succumb by the President's calling on Virginia for troops to fight South Carolina. Robert E. Scott did not take up arms in the Civil War, but was killed by a company of northern soldiers because he remonstrated with them for exploiting his homestead. At Warrenton there was a small Episcopalian church with a good preacher, Mr. Norton, and the Methodist church there, being hostile to our Baltimore conference, I often attended Mr. Norton's and taught a class in his Sunday school. On Sunday afternoon it was my chief happiness on that day to sit in the gallery playing on the little organ, alone except for the old negro sexton who blew the bellows for me, and found delight in the music. I read the law books rapidly and copied carefully, but there were sometimes two or three days in the week when there was nothing for me to do. Now and then I rode over to the Fauquier Springs to see Miss Rebecca Green, afterwards Mrs. Shackelford, who played finely on the piano and introduced me to Beethoven, Mozart, and Weber. One piece, Musero de Nina, wild, dreamy, pathetic, inspired me to write a romance. I called it Confessions of a Composer. Oh, my poor dead self! Aimless, morbid, passionately longing for it knew not what, pass to thy tardy cremation! for I cannot recognize myself in this spirit's blank misgivings as it moves about in worlds unreal. End of chapter 7, section 1